Well, uh, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It is really good to be with you guys. Again, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. It is good to have you. If there are any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, man, we would just we'd really, really, really love to do that. Come say hi to me or find somebody else who looks like they've been here before or at least like they're not wandering around crazily, right? But we just I just want you to know you're welcome here. We are really glad to have you. Uh, this fall, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. In fact, we've really been focusing on the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And we're on the tail end of that study. We just have two weeks left this week and next week. Uh, And then we're going to dive into the book of Matthew. And we'll be in the book of Matthew basically for all of next year, uh, starting just right before Christmas. Really looking forward to that. Matthew begins uh, with the story of Advent and the coming of the King and the Savior. And so really excited about the tie-in with that and Christmas coming up here. And so two weeks left. But this this is the morning. We're actually in Genesis chapter 11 today. Um, again, just this morning and, and next week in Genesis, and then we'll uh, be on to Matthew. But our passage this morning, what we're going to see is a, a building project. And I don't know about you, but I, I, really love, I really love building stuff. I could put Ikea furniture together until Jesus comes back. I mean, there is just something incredibly satisfying about the instructions and the parts, and they just kind of work together, right? As a kid, my favorite toy was Legos. I built like seven trillion spaceships. Apparently, my wife told me recently that she had Legos growing up and that she only built houses. And I was just like, I don't think it ever even crossed my mind to build a house because you could build a spaceship. So, like, why would you... Why would you build something else, right? Maybe a garage for the spaceship? I don't know, right? But I really I loved building Legos. This summer, I built a shed in our backyard. It's like giant adult Legos. It was fantastic, right? Recently, my kids have started playing with Legos. I, re- I love seeing the stuff that they build. Sometimes you really have to use your imagination. Caleb, recently, he kind of came in with like two Lego bricks that kind of like stuck together, and he's like, race car. He's just like running around the house, and I was like, I don't know if I should be like impressed with your imagination or like concerned about your eyesight. I'm just going to go with excellent work. Good job, right? And uh, this morning in our passage this morning, we see there's a, there's a building project this morning. People are building a tower, and I think, all right, my people, all right, let's do this. We can, like, we're going to build something. We're going to make something, right? But as we read this morning, what we're going to see is that God is not excited about this tower, In fact, he is absolutely opposed to this tower in pretty much every way. And then outside, you kind of think, what is the big deal? It's a tower. Like, yeah, it's just a building. What's what's the big deal? But as we're we're going to see is that this building project is more than just a tower. You see, it's a monument. It's a monument to the sinful heart of humanity. You see, the tower at Babel this morning in Genesis 11, it is the physical manifestation of the mutinous rebellion that is at the root of all sin. But while the tower itself that we'll read about this morning is a monument to the sinful, rebellious hearts of humanity, the story that we read in Genesis 11 about the tower, it's a monument to something else. It's a monument to a God who is sovereign and gracious and loving and who disciplines humanity's rebellion for our good, but more than anything, for his great glory. As I studied this week, as I prepped, I just kept thinking about how timeless the truths of God's word are. You see, humanity, we might be more sophisticated, we might be more technological, but the heart-level stuff we all deal with hasn't changed in thousands and thousands of years. They're still the same. But so is the God who sovereignly and graciously disciplines our rebellion because he loves us and he longs for our good and for his glory. 
And so with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll dive into our passage this morning. God, we come before you this morning, we just say, we, we really need you. God, I don't have what I need of my own strength, of my own power, of my own will. Like, I don't have what I need to, to teach your word rightly this morning. God, what I need is you. I need your spirit to fill me so that our, that our study of your word is fruitful and good. God, and we need you to be the ones that make our hearts teachable and moldable and shapeable. We need you to be the one that causes your word to seep deeply into our hearts. And we just say, God, we can't do that without you. We come just dependent on you for everything this morning, God, for the air that we breathe and for the, the truth of your word needing it to sink into our hearts. And so, God, thank you that you meet us in our need. Thank you that you are good. God, we just pray that our time together would just be all about you. That would be for our good, but ultimately be for your glory. And so, pray these things in your good name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, the, the story of Noah and the flood, it ended in Genesis chapter 9. And uh, ended with God telling Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and then in Genesis chapter 10, we get what's called the, the table of nations. And it kind of shows us, it's a genealogy, that kind of shows us the, how the different nations all came to be and kind of how they came to spread after uh, Noah and his sons got off the ark. And, but chapter 11, if you'll notice, those of you who are keenly aware, and those of you who kind of stick to the details, you notice it kind of feels like we, took a, we take a step backwards because Everybody's not all spread out anymore. We're back, right? And that's because Genesis 11 is a prequel, right? Genesis 11 is like the prequel to Genesis 10. And it's the explainer, right? It said Genesis 10 was, here's how all the nations spread. And Genesis 11 is, here's why they spread. Here's the why behind that. Here's the, here's the reason behind what, what happened in Genesis 10. So those of you who are hoping for me to read a genealogy and watch my pain in that, too bad for you, right? You'll get another chance next week because... We got another one coming up. Anyways, so we're in Genesis 11 this morning. We're starting verse 1, we're in, uh, verse 1 through 9. So the whole world had one language and one common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they, came, they said, come, let us build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there over all of the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it's called Babel, because the Lord there confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. See, as we study this morning, the story kind of takes place in two acts. Kind of two, two acts. Act one is man's rebellion. In Acts two, we see God's in Act 2, we see God's response. We begin in uh, Act 1 of our story, which is kind of verses 1 through 4. You see, the, the passage begins with the, with the story of the rebellion of humanity, and really begins with the story about unity. You see, they had the same language, they had the same direction, they had the same goal, they, they had the same plans, they're all in on trying to build this city and build this tower and stop here and make, make things happen. And we'd look at that today and we'd think, wow, that would be really awesome if everybody could just be on the same page and everybody just like, got on the same track and we're making it happen and everybody agreed. It's like the contractor's utopia, right? All the parties agree on what's going on, right? Jeff's just sitting back there thinking like, oh, that'd be so amazing, right? But God is not excited about the unity that he sees 
Because what's uniting these people is not God and his mission and his glory, but it's their own mission and their own purposes and their own glory. You see, what's really going on here is just not just a unified humanity. What's going on is a unified rebellion. You see, we see the nature of their rebellion first in what they are doing, or rather what they're not doing. You see, verse, verse 2 says, As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. They stop. Put the brakes. They, their plan is to be there for good. They, they're dropping the anchor, last stop on the train, everybody out, this is it. No further, this is where we're going. And you think, what's so wrong about finding a place to settle down? Everybody wants to just find a spot. What's so wrong about that? Well, the problem is, is that God had told them to do the exact opposite of settle down. You see, Genesis 1, God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God gives the same command again to Noah at the end of Genesis chapter 9. He says, again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And see, what's happening here at the Tower of Babel is a refusal to fill the earth. It is a rejection of God's plans and his purposes and his authority. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, these people are settling down and they are building a city in the east. Just like their wicked ancestor Cain did when, in Genesis 4, he traveled east of Eden and built his own city. You see, the east, in Genesis, the east is never a good direction to be heading. Because it's symbolic of heading away from God, away from his purposes, away from the garden. But it's not just what they are doing that is rebellious. More importantly, what we see is why they are doing it. That is the heart of their rebellion. Verse 4 tells us why they settle down, why they're building this city, why they're building this tower. It says, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered all over the face of the earth. You see, they're not concerned about God's name and about God's glory. They're concerned about their own name and their own glory and their own kingdom and their own purposes. And to really understand the significance of that, we've got to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that humanity is made in the image of God. We spent four weeks here on River City talking about the, the significance and the implications of what that means because it is such a big deal, because it is so important. You see, being made in the image of God, it means that humanity, unlike any other part of creation, possesses the ability to, the capacity to know God and to reflect his nature and his character and that we are commissioned by him to be his representatives who reflect his nature and his character into the world. You see, in that truth, that radically informs and transforms our identity and our purpose. You see, instead of believing that this world and this life is ultimately about us and our glory, you see the doctrine of the Imago Dei being made in the image of God. What it means is that our purpose is to reflect God who's and his glory, because we bear his image. We are his representatives. You see, the why behind the tower reveals the true nature of the rebellious hearts of the people at Babel. You see, they have staged a coup. They have dethroned God as the king, as the one who is worthy of glory, and the one who is worthy of honor, and the one who is worthy of praise, and they have enthroned themselves. You see, they want to be God. They don't want to be God's representatives living to make his name great. They want to be their own representatives living to make their own name great. And this is not just a misguided accident. You need to see this. This is a mutinous rebellion. You see, the tower that they are building, it is the physical manifestation of their rejection of God's good authority and his purposes and their identity in him. It is the physical manifestation of their hearts which have said, God, we reject you. 
No longer will we live as your image-bearing representatives. We will represent ourselves. We will be for our name, for our glory, and that's what we'll pursue, not yours. You see, God had told them to scatter, to multiply, to fill the earth, so that every corner of the earth will be filled with people who bear his image and who live for his glory and his name. But in their sinful rebellion, they had decided that God's plan is not in their best interest. Instead, they want to build a city and a tower to make their name great. But what they're also trying to do is they're trying to keep themselves safe. You see that at the end of verse 4, they say, let's build this city, let's build this tower. Otherwise, we're going to get scattered all over the earth. You see this in their rejection of God. They had lost something that they were trying to get back by building this city. You see, they had lost their sense of security. When you are the representative of the king, right? When you are a representative of the king and you are in his domain, you are always safe. You are always safe because the king is the one who is in authority. Whenever you are in his domain, you are under his good protection. But when you defy the king, you no longer have his safe protection. You see, and that's what's going on for the people here. They have defied the king of the world. They've defied the creator of the universe and they have found themselves no longer under his good protection You see, and in building the city and settling down roots and gathering instead of scattering, they are trying to get that sense of security back. They're trying to get it back with their own ingenuity. Uh, Verse 3 tells us that they're building bricks and they use mortar and all this different kind of stuff. And that's a technological advancement. See, there was no stone, the passage says. So they're like, how are we going to build this thing? We'll have to figure it out ourselves. We're going to engineer the crap out of this thing and we're going to make it happen. By our own strength and by our own ingenuity and by our own power, we're going to do it. And they try to get that sense of security back by causing others to respect them and fear them. They want to build this huge tower so that all the nations around will see those people are a big deal. They really know what's going on. Let's, let's just stay away from them, right? Let's not bother. They can build this huge tower. Who knows what else they can do, right? Let's, let's just stay away. You see, they're trying to get this sense of security and respect back, but under their arrogant and prideful rebellion, what's really going on is just a desperate insecurity. You see, and we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Why, why do we so desperately need to have power and influence over situations or over other people? Why do we so desperately need to have control over all the variables in our lives or, or just as parents, over all the variables in your kids' lives? Why do we so desperately need to have control of that stuff? Why is it just like that sense of not knowing? Why does that just eat away at us? It's because we're trying to find safety and we're trying to find security. And we're trying to do it outside of God. You see, what happens is when we try to find it outside of him, it never really works. The more power and the more control you, you gain, the more you just realize how little power you really have and how All the things that you can control is just the beginning of an endless list of the things that would need to be controlled. You see, this is how sin always works. It lies to us. Sin lies and says, you don't need God. You don't need him. You are better off on your own. And then sin tries to get us to find in something else the things we lost in God that we were only ever meant to find in him. And it just leaves us longing leaves us searching and it just leaves our hearts hungry and empty you see it's not wrong to to desire significance it's not wrong to desire security but it's wrong to try to get those things outside of god 
It's wrong to try to get those things outside of him. And that's what's happening here. But like, like we do so often, they, these people are they're blind to the deception of the sin in their hearts and, and their, the blindness. And in their blindness, they just keep on building. You see, the anthem of their rebellion is my strength, my way, my power. That's the anthem of the rebellious hearts of these people. My strength, my power, my glory. And like the student section at a college football game, they just keep chanting it. And with every brick, with every self-sufficient brick, and with every self-glorifying brick they lay, they are chanting the, the song of their unified rebellion. My strength, my glory, my way. And God hears their chants, which brings us to act two. We see God's response. I see, God sees their rebellious hearts, and in verse 5, he comes down to take a look at their tower. And it doesn't really come across super well in our English translation, but... Well, but the, the way that some of these words sound in Hebrew is, is meant to kind of highlight um, the mockery that God is making in verse 5 of these people. See, these people think that what they're building is this just really impressive tower. Look at our ingenuity. We made these bricks out of nothing. You thought we couldn't do it, but we did it. We have this awesome city that's getting built and this huge tower. It's incredible. We are just really, really proud of ourselves. This is going great. It is, is really impressive. And in verse 5, what we see is, verse 5 is telling us their tower is pathetic. It was tiny. God could hardly even see it from heaven. In fact, he had to get down off his throne and go find it down on the earth. You see, their, their impressive marvel is like one of those mega block towers that the kids are probably building in nursery as we speak, right? And the kids, it's like taller than them, and they're like, wow. And the adults in the room are like, wow, that's incredible. I'm, uh, it's like two and a half feet tall. Wow, really, really impressive, guys. Just, just, just nailing it, right? You see, what's going on here? is that the, the, the builders at the Tower of Babel, they have a really high view of man and a really low view of God. And they are really impressed with themselves and they are wildly unimpressed with God. And God in his graciousness is going to course correct their view. You see, you can't have a high view of man and a low view of God. You can't have a high view of them at the same time. Either God is high, he is in authority, or he's not. You see, and God here is unimpressed with them and what they are building. He looks down on their tower and he thinks, hmm, yeah, I built the world. Not impressed by your little tower. But like a wise and loving father, he sees the significance of their actions. And he sees where it will lead if he lets them continue down the road. And so he confuses their language. It's almost like God is saying, ha, 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 that's enough. We'll be done with this now. And so God, he judges and he disciplines their sinful rebellion. And he sovereignly, he unties the rope that holds their unified rebellion together. And it's simple for him. It's not hard work. He just confuses their language. And just like with the flood, there's nothing that these people could do. There is no opposition that they, that they muster. There's no counterattack. There's no pushing through. They just receive God's just judgment of what's going on. But unlike the flood, they are not destroyed. Instead, they are scattered. God sovereignly course corrects their GPS, and he sends them back on the direction they're supposed to be going. This shows us the incredible sovereignty of God. Nothing can stop his plans. 
Nothing can stop his purposes. Nothing can thwart his endeavors. You see, his plans and his purposes and his promises cannot be defeated. They cannot be overcome. No amount of our sinful rebellion can overcome what God is going to accomplish. But God's confusion of their language at the tower, it also shows us the incredible grace and mercy of God because what should have happened is another flood. I guarantee you that's what the audience that originally heard this is thinking. They're thinking, here we go again. History's repeating itself. God creates a new world, and then man sins, and, and then sin spreads, and God judges, and that happened with Adam and Eve, and got to Noah, and here we are again, right? Noah sinned, and then it's spreading at the Tower of Babel, and here we go again. But God, doesn't, God does judge their sinful rebellion, but in keeping with his covenant with Noah, in keeping with his promises, he doesn't destroy humanity and the world again. What he does is he disciplines them. You see, what's so interesting is that God leaves their tower standing. If, God, if I was God, I would tear that sucker down. <laughs> That's what I would do. But God leaves their tower standing there. He leaves it there just rotting. One pastor notes he's trying to let them taste early on the disappointments of their sin before they go down fully down the path that it will lead. You see, sometimes in your life, you, you find yourself just, it feels like you are fighting this never-ending battle. It just feels like things are never going your way. It feels like you just keep this one thing after the next. It just kind of keeps going. And what you need to realize is that sometimes when that's happening, what's going on is you are actually fighting God. But you are not fighting him as an enemy. He is fighting you as a friend. Proverbs tells us that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. See, sometimes what happens in our lives when we are just pushing and pushing and fighting and fighting, what we're fighting against is God's gracious friendship. What we're fighting against is his good authority. What he's trying to do is keep us from the end of our sin, where it will always lead and where it will always go. Because God is good and he's gracious and he is full of mercy. See, sometimes God leaves standing broken towers of disappointment in our lives those towers are a result of our sinful rebellion and we see the, we see the, the crumbles of those towers in, in our broken relationships or in our failed jobs or in our careers or in our families or in the mistakes that we've made and we see those things. But God leaves those there oftentimes for us so that we'll remember them and look at them. In high school, I was, uh, just, had, I was just in a really unhealthy relationship. And God graciously uh, ended that when I was heading off to college. And for a long time, whenever I thought about that, it was just like, I just had like guilt and shame as I thought about that. I didn't ever want to tell anybody about that story, and I didn't ever want to tell anybody about what was going on there. I didn't, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to process that. But God graciously kept bringing that up over and over and over in my heart. Because what God was trying to do was he was trying to help me see you were looking for something here that you could never find. What you're looking for, you can only find in me. What you long for so desperately, you can only find in me. And I'm leaving this tower standing here in your life so that whenever you think about it, you will be reminded that what you long for, I give. That what you long for, nothing else can satisfy. What are the broken towers in your life? What, what, what are those places where you have tasted the, the disappointing bitterness that sin always leaves when, it, when, it, when you pursue it but it doesn't satisfy? 
Maybe it's a failed relationship or, or a failed job. Maybe there's a, an addiction that you've wrestled with or a way that you have been humiliated or, or, or a lack of approval that you have. Or maybe you lost a job or something. I just want to encourage you this way. What if you learn to think about the disappointments in your life, those, the bitterness of those broken towers that you look back on? What if you learn to think about that your rebellious heart is left? What if you learn to think about those as monuments with a message? As monuments that God leaves in your life because he is longing for you to come and return to him. You see, he is what you are longing for, but cannot find outside of him. You see, he is what you so desperately need, but cannot get met in anything else. You see, sin tells us we don't need God, that he does not have our best interests in mind, that we are better off without him. But it always leaves us longing for what only God can truly give to us. You see, like the builders at Babel, we want glory. We want to be recognized. We want to be seen as significant. But the significance that we really long for is to be significant in God's eyes. You see, like the builders at Babel, we want to be safe and we want to be secure. But the security that we really need is to be secure in God's arms. You see, and at the cross, God is offering both of those things to us. See, Jesus on the cross, he says, you are worth dying for. You are of immeasurable significance. You see, we don't need glory for ourselves. We have all the significance we could ever long for in the cross of Christ. And Jesus says, in me you can be secure. My sacrifice is enough. I will pay the debt that your mutinous rebellion owes. And when Jesus gave his last breath and he cried out, it is finished, it really was. Our security does not come from our performance. It comes from Jesus' performance. And on the cross, what happens is we trade places with him. By faith, when we put our hope in him, he takes on the payment for our mutinous rebellion. And when we get him, is the reward for his righteousness. You see, like, he, like Jesus is, God is well pleased with us. We are safe in his arms. No one can ever take us out of his hands. That's the kind of security you and I really are longing for. You see, what we all want is we want to be in a relationship that we can't mess up. We want to be in a relationship that is not based on our failings and not based on our performance. You need to hear this. The only relationship that works that way is your relationship with God. That's it. That's the only relationship that perfectly works that way. See, J.D. Gear writes, see, the arms that you search for in romance are his arms. The security that you work for in this life is only found in his promises. The fullness that you yearn for in all your pursuits is only experienced in his presence. You see, and when you find those things in him, you have more than you need. You have more significance than you could ever possibly need. And you have more security and more safety than you could ever possibly need. And it says you are free because of it. You see, what the gospel does is it frees us to stop building our own pathetic towers of disappointment and instead join God in building his city, in building his kingdom, in building a better city, a better tower. In Revelations, what we see is that God is building a better city, and at the high point of God's city is not a tower, but is a throne. And the king of all kings is sitting on the throne. 
Revelation 7 tells us that all around the throne, a great multitude that no one could number or count from every nation and tribe and people and language, they're all crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation, it belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they're crying out blessings and glory and wisdom and honor and thanksgiving and power be to our God forever and ever. You see, Revelation 7 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's a reversal of our sinful rebellion and it's only possible because of Jesus. You see, on the cross, Jesus reverses the judgment of our sinful rebellion so that we might have grace and right relationship with God and so that instead of crying out for and living for our name and our glory and our power and our ways we get the joy of living for his see the invitations of Genesis 11 and, and Revelation is for us to live today in light of that day you see that is how it will end God's promises will never be God's plans will never be overcome. And so when God says this is how it ends, that is how it will be. And so you and I, we get a choice. Either we will live for our glory and our purposes and our kingdom and our anthem will be my power, my way, my glory, or our anthem will be Jesus, your power. Jesus, your way. Jesus, your glory. See, we're either going to build our pointless, worthless towers that only end in disappointment and only lend, they they only end in destruction, or we will join Jesus in building a kingdom that is beyond compare. What a privilege, what an honor that is to get to join him in those things. Do you see the life and the vibrance and the joy that is in the midst of that? So the question this morning for us is, whose city are you building? Whose glory are you pursuing? Whose security are you resting in? You see, sin says, gather for security. Gather for your own glory. But the gospel says, scatter for the glory of God. Resting in his good security. You see, the goal of River City, the goal of this church, is not to be this huge, massive church that that just pulls people from everywhere. The goal of this church, it's in our vision. Right? We want to grow in the gospel. We want to make disciples. And we want to plant more churches. You see the great, you see the, the call that God gives to Adam and to Noah to go multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He gives again through Jesus in the Great Commission. He says, Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of every nation and every tongue. You see, and so we gather here on Sunday mornings. This is, not the, this is not the epicenter of what we do. No, we gather so that we might be empowered to be scattered for God's mission and his purposes and his glory throughout the week. And we gather so that we might continue to grow, so that we might continue to be spread and scattered throughout our state and our city, throughout our nation and throughout our world, so that God's glory might be pursued, so that his name might be heralded, so that his name would be made great, not our name. You see, we exist for God's glory so that his name will be praised. And that is the gracious privilege and honor that we are invited into and that we remember when we take communion. 
see communion, what we're remembering and what we're celebrating is that we are God's redeemed, image-bearing people, that God has saved us from our sinful rebellion, and that he has sent us as his redeemed people on his mission for his glory, that his name would be known throughout all of the world. You see, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and his blood, which were broken and shed for us so that we might be forgiven for our sinful rebellion and be accepted by God and return to the significance and the security that we really long for. And what we're doing together as we take communion every week is we are proclaiming the gospel to one another, reminding ourselves, reminding one another of who we are because of Jesus and all that he has done. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. The Bible is clear. There is only one thing that changes how God sees you, and it is faith in the person and the work of Jesus. See, if your relationship with God was based on anything you did, you, you would mess it up. You would not have significance. You would not have the security that you are longing for. Oh, but God's relationship with you that we're remembering in communion is not about what you do. Oh, it's about what Jesus has done for you. And so you are, your security and your significance is unshakable and is unmovable if by faith you've put your hope in the person and the work of Jesus to make you right with God. And so this morning, during our time of musical worship at the end, if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus to be the one who makes you right with God, the one who has paid the penalty for your sinful rebellion, the one who has redeemed you and given you, sent you back on his mission and his purposes for his glory, then go back and take communion. There's a table on the, in the back on the left and on the right, and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, and, and do it, you do it as a celebration, as a, as a remembering. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. As you do, I would just encourage you to talk with God. Just be honest with him about the towers that you are building. Be honest with him about the ways that you're building your own towers instead of his kingdom. Ask him to help you see the broken towers in your life, not just as guilt. Ask him to help you see them, those as monuments with a message, as a calling that you might return to him that you might see what you're really longing for, that those things could never give, is him, is his love, is his significance, is his security. And ask him to fill you with his spirit so that instead of living for your own name and your own glory, you might live for his in this age and in every age to come. Let us pray. Jesus, we, we want to be a people who live for your glory. God, God, I want the anthem of my life not to be my strength and my way and my glory. God, I want the anthem of my life to be your power, your strength, your way, your glory. God, I want our church to not exist for the good of River City, but I want it to exist for the good of this city so that the people here in Dubuque might come to know and love and follow and serve you, Jesus, the King of all kings, that the people in our city would, would see you as the one who is worthy of worship, would see you as the one whose name is worth being made great. God, and we are so grateful that you might graciously and mercifully save us and send us. God, that, you, that we would be your people, sent for your purposes and your kingdom and your glory. God, we just confess to you, we don't deserve the honor and the privilege that that is. Oh, Jesus, but we are so humbled that you would invite us into it with you. God, by your grace, God, would you 
would you make known to us just the, the towers of disappointment in our own lives that our sinful rebellion has left? Would you help us see those as, as a calling from you to return and find in you what we were looking for in something else? God, thank you, thanks that you are a good father who still, while we are a long ways off, God sees us and comes running for us. Thank you that you are a good father who loves us. Thank you that you are a wise father who disciplines us for our good. God, would you cause us to be a people who longs most not for our names to be great, but for your name to be great. God, help us live, God, for our good, but most of all, for your great and abiding glory in all ways. Amen.